0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Singing for Survival, the Capora History podcast. This is Desconfiado, and welcome to our first episode of 2021. 2020 was a, a difficult year for lots of reasons, but um, it was very fun and grounding to um, to start this work and really learn a lot about these subjects, and I'm really excited to continue this into the new year. In today's episode, we are going farther back in time than any of our previous episodes, back to the foundations of the transatlantic slave trade in Western Africa. We're not talking about a capoeirista, and we aren't even talking about a Brazilian, but instead someone who is hugely important to the resistance of foreign influence in African nations. We are talking about Queen Jinga of Angola. A person who used every tactic available to her to keep her nation independent, and whose legacy led to the modern-day independent state of Angola. Angola is hugely important to Capoeira history and present-day culture, since the majority of people stolen from Africa and brought to Brazil were from the region known as Portuguese Angola. The roots of many aspects of modern-day Capoeira are thus traced back to this region, and through this discussion, we'll talk about how the Portuguese expanded into western Africa, the methods Jinga used to resist them, and why Jenga's image has needed to be rehabilitated in the way that it has been over the past few decades. This was a really interesting topic for me to look into since um, I really didn't know anything about Jinga other than her name. Um, there's, a, there's an Angola group that is named after her and there aren't really any direct references to her in in Cupwita music that I can find at this point. Um, so really digging into this topic and learning more about this era of African history was really interesting to me. Um, for this episode, I leaned heavily on the book Jinga of Angola, Africa's Warrior Queen by Dr. Linda Haywood. Dr. Haywood is a professor of African history, the history of the African diaspora, and African-American studies at Boston University. She's a prolific author on these topics, and there's also quite a few of her lectures you can find on YouTube. In the time of this episode, I can only get into a fraction of the details that Dr. Haywood presents, so I highly, highly recommend you give her book a read or listen to some of her lectures to learn more. She's a really engaging and animated speaker um, it's really uh, enjoyable to watch the, the lectures and you really learn a lot. Uh, you can tell how much she cares about this subject. So please uh, go support her work. Um, watch some lectures. Uh, you really learn a lot from that. But without uh, any more introduction, let's get into our story today on Queen Jinga of Angola. before we get started, I should first say that there are several different spellings and pronunciations of uh, Jinga's name. The, the one that I'm choosing to use for today is consistent with what Dr. Haywood uses in both her, her book and her lectures. Um, so I'm just saying that for consistency here, uh, not to say that this is the one true correct way of, of spelling or pronouncing this name. To set the stage for this episode, let's talk about the Portuguese entry into West Africa around the turn of the 16th century. The mid to late 1400s is what we can call the age of discovery for Portugal. This is when many now famous explorers set sail to, uh, to explore p- places like North and South America, Southeast Asia, and most importantly, Africa. An important accomplishment of the Portuguese explorers was actually sailing all the way around the southern tip of Africa. That was really considered a, a goal by many of those explorers. And along the way, they encountered many different African nations and people. At first, they sought to establish peaceful relationships, economic relationships with these different nations however the dynamic that they were seeking would soon change in the coming decades uh, especially after they had colonized brazil in southern america so around this time some of the some of the people who were going on trading expeditions started capturing native Africans, and bringing them back to Portugal to show to the prince. Um, Many times they would eventually be sold as property in Portugal, but more importantly, this started to spark some interest in acquiring slaves in in Africa. This garnered even more interest when, after capturing uh, a few of these people, they were offered their freedom if they could bring the portuguese 10 slaves to go in their place so slavery was at this point a a relatively common practice in some of these west african nations however this was more related to um, to a social status type thing, and not really a, an economic system as the Portuguese would eventually turn it into. So with this exchange, the Portuguese started to see some economic opportunities that they could take advantage of. And this kind of dovetailed in nicely with their own colonial pursuits in Southern America. So from this point, the primary interest of the Portuguese in Western Africa would be to develop a reliable, consistent flow of slave labor to be exported to their colonies in Brazil. And some of this, or some of these people that would be that would be exported, were gained through uh, military conquest. So just directly capturing people. But a large portion of this would be through their relationships with uh, the, the larger, the more powerful uh, African nations there at the time. And this would be done through a few different methods. Uh, some of this would be through uh, coercion that was militarily motivated. So putting military pressure on some of these nations. Um, some would be diplomatic uh, and, and others economic. Uh, there, there was a degree of of trade and diplomacy that went into developing um, how the Portuguese would would get the the kind of labor force that they would need to export. But this is this is really a huge topic, um, and I don't I don't want to spend too much time on it today, just so we can focus on our main story. But uh, needless to say, this will definitely have to be. Uh, More information for a future episode. So in the beginning of the 1500s, the Kingdom of Congo, which was one of the largest and most powerful kingdoms in Western and Central Africa at this time, had opened their lands to the Portuguese and even allowed them to build a small settlement on the island of Luanda. This would become their foothold and an important base of operations for the Portuguese. Seeing this budding relationship with their neighbors, the rulers of a nearby nation called Endongo were motivated to build their own relationship with these new foreigners. They would send emissaries to Lisbon starting in 1518 and going through 1575. The focus of our story will be on the nation of Ndongo and their relationship with the Portuguese. Ndongo is the nation that Jingo was born into and was the nation that she would one day rule. So towards the, the middle of the 16th century, the, the mid 1500s, the king of Ndongo, Ndambi Angola, would allow Portuguese visitors, including missionaries, to remain in the capital city of Cabasa. He was doing this at the Portuguese request in an effort to build diplomatic relationships uh, with the Portuguese. However, the king's son, Angola Kilowanje, was very suspicious of the Portuguese. And when he took power in 1561, cast them out of the capital. This suspicion was well founded, as the true goal of the Portuguese at this time was to conquer Ndongo and integrate them into the growing Portuguese empire. At this point, the Portuguese had started to expand their land claims from Luanda east into western uh, and central Africa, starting their nation of Portuguese Angola. As I mentioned earlier, the goal at this point for the Portuguese is to develop their reliable slave trade in this region and conquering the nearby nations, subjugating them was a big part of that plan. So that is the, the stage we see ourselves in in the nation of, of Ndongo in Western Africa when we will come to start to talk about the life of Jenga. Jinga was born in 1582, the daughter of a royal line that went all the way back to Ndongo's founders. She had two sisters, Funji and Kambu, and a brother Mbande. Her legend starts right from her birth, as her umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck when she was delivered. She survived, which was an auspicious sign of strength in Ndongo culture, and was the source of her name. As Jinga means to turn, twist, or wrap in Kumbundo. When she was 10 years old, Jinga's father became king of Ndongo. And in her youth, Jinga was favored by her father for her interest and aptitude in both the political and cultural activities in the royal court. For this reason, she was allowed to attend many of the different councils her father presided over giving her a lot of first-hand experience in the customs of the court. And as part of these duties, Jinga was taught to read and write by Portuguese. And as part of these duties, Jinga was taught to read and write and and as and as part of these duties, Jinga was taught to read and write Portuguese by missionaries stationed in the court. Now in this period the Portuguese were still using the same tactics as they had with previous rulers of Ndongo to push their way further and further into western Africa to gain more land more footholds in the area and in 1616 after years of failing to keep the Portuguese advance at bay Jinga's father was killed in an ambush by his own men now successions of power after the, after the death of a king in Ndongo were often messy and bloody and this case was no exception. Court officials were responsible for helping choose the next king from those with eligible lineages, Uh, in this case the children of the king via his principal wife and concubines. Eventually, Jinga's brother, N'gola Mbande, was chosen, and he unleashed a bloodbath in an effort to solidify his position and power. His half-brother, that brother's mother, and all of her siblings were quickly murdered, along with other members of his father's court and their families. Now, like I said, this was a fairly common practice um, in Ndongo at the time because the king was selected by the court officials, and that selection was primarily based on bloodlines and lineages. So the easiest way for the new king to... Uh, to solidify his right to rule, was to eliminate all of his competitors. Jinga had a son at this time with one of her male concubines, and Mbande had that child killed and attempted to have Jinga and her two sisters sterilized. Quote, oils combined with herbs were thrown while boiling onto the bellies of his sisters, so that from the shock, fear, and pain, they should be forever unable to give birth. After facing this cruelty from her brother, Jinga fled to the nearby kingdom of Matamba. Meanwhile, her brother was fighting a failing battle against the Portuguese, both militarily and diplomatically. The Portuguese were continuing to expand their influence over the Sobas in Ndongo, continuing their strategies used with previous Angolas. Now, Sobas... um, are, are a lot like lords in a feudal system. Um, so if you relate back to, a say, a European model where you have the king and then lords under the king who, uh, who will govern section of the kingdom, um, that's essentially what a soba is in relation to the, the king or the Angola. So facing seeming defeat, in desperation, Gola Mbande called on Jinga to help negotiate with these foreign invaders. Jinga had been saddened by the famine and terror that had seized her nation, and returned to her brother's court in 1621 to help. Jinga then traveled to Luanda in 1622 to meet with the current Portuguese governor, Dom João Correa de Souza. African dignitaries were typically expected to wear Western European attire at these meetings in order to appease the Portuguese, but Jinga chose to wear extravagant traditional Ndongo dress. Her goal in this meeting was to establish that Ndongo was an independent sovereign nation that wouldn't be subjugated by the Portuguese, and she intended to make that statement even in how she appeared when she arrived. When she arrived to the meeting, there were chairs for the Portuguese attendants, but only a mat on the floor for her to sit on. This was a typical tactic used by the Portuguese To put African leaders in a subjugated or subservient negotiating position. Seeing this setup, Jinga ordered one of her soldiers to kneel on the floor like a stool and she sat on his back so that she could talk with the governor eye to eye. Having thus established her presence, Jinga negotiated fiercely and eventually secured the withdrawal of Portuguese troops and gained recognition of Ndongo's sovereignty. To get this, she agreed to open trade routes to the portuguese and agreed to be baptized and to study christianity and this here is going to be the first in many steps of jinga using her spirituality as a negotiating chip Um, as a kind of funny aside that i think um, says a lot about jinga's character and how she approached these meetings Uh, there's a there's another story about how this this meeting ended where after the negotiations were finished uh jinga got up from from her her stool uh and walked to leave and as she as she left one of the portuguese attendants called out to her and said you left your 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 man here your stool and Jingo responded something to the effect of, "A queen never sits on the same stool twice," and I have many others just like it. And, and left her man there. But as a result of these negotiations, Jingo was baptized in Luanda and given the Christian name Donna Ana de Souza, which she would occasionally use in correspondences going forward. The success of this meeting gave Ndongo some footing against the Portuguese intrusion but that would change in the spring of 1624 when Gala Mbande died of poisoning. By some accounts this was suicide and other stories say that the poison was administered by his sister. But whatever the truth the death of the king sparked the usual succession turmoil with Jinga as the clear favored pick. But this normally tumultuous succession was worsened greatly by the involvement of the Portuguese governor D'Souza D'Souza recognized Jenga as a powerful leader and enemy who would make the goals of the Portuguese in Western Africa very difficult so he and his cabinet decided to install their own candidate favorable to them Hária Kilowandje. Simultaneously they named Jinga a usurper and argued that she had no right to rule since, quote, a woman had never governed this kingdom. Angola Hari, bolstered by material support from the Portuguese, then fought against Jinga and her supporters, trying to capture and or kill her to end the challenge to his throne. And these events effectively pushed Jinga into exile along with her supporters, um, really allowing her only guerrilla warfare options to fight back against both Angolahari and his Portuguese supporters and I think this is a good point in our story to take a break and and have a listen to some music that I think relates to the topic at hand like I said we don't have songs that directly reference Jenga at this point uh, so instead I'm going to share a song that talks about Angola.
1: Eu vivia nas terras de Angola quando o senhor me capturou Mais um de nosso grande rei negro lá de cativeiro, ele me libertou Sou eu, Maitá, sou eu Sou eu, Maitá, sou, sou, sou eu Sou eu, Maitá, sou eu Sou eu, Maitá, sou eu Dentro do grande navio negreiro, nós eram humilhados, também maltratados Aqueles que ficassem doentes no fundo do mar, eles eram jovens
0: so this is a this is another recording by mestre barron who we've who we've talked about before um, and this is this is a really nice Historical piece built into this um, built into this capoeira song. So, like I mentioned in the beginning of, beginning of the episode, um, we don't really have capoeira songs that are directly about Jenga. At least, not that I've been able to find. Um, but we have a lot of songs about Angola. Angola is incredibly important to capoeira and to capoeira culture. So there's a lot of references to it. There's a lot of songs about it. Um, not. And, you know, we can branch these off into two places about songs directly about Angola the place and about Angola the, um, the style, right? The more, what we, what, what is really considered the more traditional uh, style. So this song talks about uh, people being stolen from, from Africa. It talks about going through Luanda. It talks about... Um, the the transit across the Atlantic in the slave ships it mentions how people um, African people who were who were sick or who were who were dying on the on those slave ships were just tossed overboard. Um, it really paints a vivid image of the um, of the the transatlantic slave trade and the effect on the people that were taken from Africa for that. So, to continue on with the story of Jenga's life, we have to take a small aside to talk about the Imbangala. The Imbangala were nomadic warrior tribes that traveled through western and central Africa around this time period. They were not so much a nationality as they never developed a state, uh, but were a way of living. And these different bands of Imbangala grew as people captured through war and raids were incorporated into the band. In fact, Bengala women were explicitly forbidden to bear children, and infanticide was a pretty common practice. The people in the band were bound together by the ajila, which were rules by which they operated. The person credited with regularizing and codifying these ajila was Temboa Andumbo who was reported to have performed rituals that degendered her, transforming her into a, quote, man, soldier, and warrior. And the stories about Tembo um, are are important to mention because they will serve as a, a bit of a guide that Jinga would use to model her leadership as she went forward. So, having faced defeat and now in near exile, Jinga turned to the Mbengalas in search of support. And here she got her first break. Two major Imbengala leaders decided to help her, Kasa and kasanje In fact, she married Kasa to secure her connection to these Imbengala and rapidly adopted their customs to assimilate herself and her people. The first example of this being the Kuya, a blood oath ceremony that involved the drinking of human blood to affirm their alliance. This is another example of Jinga adopting different cultures and lifestyles in order to further her political goals. Uh, really similar to how she did that with, um, with Christianity in her initial negotiations with the Portuguese. So like I said, Jenga immersed herself in the life and ways of the MbanGala. She led her band in several military conquests, culminating in 1635 when she conquered Matamba and captured its queen. This reestablished Jinga as a political leader in the region, and also became the first time an Imbangala leader ruled over a state, which goes to show that even though Jinga was willing to take on aspects of the Imbangala culture, she was not looking to be a Imbangala leader per se. She's merely using this as leverage in order to to get to her final political goals of being a powerful leader in the region and also retaking her former state of Ndongo. Simultaneously, Jinga had formed a tenuous alliance with the Dutch. At this time, the Dutch were at war with the Portuguese over land and control of the slave trade in Western Africa. And Jinga saw this as an opportunity to put pressure on her primary enemy. After the Dutch captured Luanda, she joined forces with them to further harass Portuguese positions. But this alliance with the Dutch was not a final solution, as Jinga knew her goals of regaining her people's lands and establishing herself as a powerful African leader would not align with the Dutch goal of a reliable slave trade to northeast Brazil. She still needed a better, more sustainable solution that would establish her as a leader as a as a queen and give her sovereignty over her land. So like I was just mentioning, we've seen through Jinga's path that she saw spirituality as a powerful tool in negotiating with the Portuguese and establishing the sovereignty of her nation. We can recall back to when she received baptism in her earliest negotiations on behalf of her brother, but even here at this later point in her life Jinga understood that Christianity was absolutely key to the security of Ndongo, and she saw an opening in 1648 when her army captured two Capuchin missionaries during an invasion of Congo's Wandu province. Her soldiers, who had been ordered not to kill Christian priests, delivered these missionaries directly to her. At this point, Jinga's sister, Kambu, was still a prisoner of the Portuguese, and her other sister, Funji had been drowned after being found out for spying for Jinga. And so, Jinga had additional motivation in, in wanting to pursue more diplomatic relationships with the Portuguese. She wanted to get her sister freed. So, after receiving these missionaries, Jinga started to request more priests from the portuguese she came to them saying that she had come back to her faith and that she wanted to reignite her own christianity and also convert her nation into a christian nation and the portuguese were understandably skeptical of these requests um, as they obviously remembered that After being baptized, Jinga had essentially thrown aside her her Christian practices and gone back to war against the Portuguese. So Jinga needed something to to convince them of her sincerity here. And this would come from uh, one of her generals, Jinga Amona. During one of his battles, Jinga Amona had desecrated a church, damaging their large crucifix and throwing it in the bush. That night, he had a dream in which the crucifix appeared to him and told him, quote, take me to your queen or I will see that you will not leave this place. And so he did just that. And Jinga used this story to strengthen her convictions to the Capuchins as well as to help convince her people of the need of conversion. And while it's possible this story is genuine, the timing of it makes it Highly suspicious that Jinga fabricated it in order to help with her political aims to convince the the Portuguese that she was sincere in her uh, in her piety, and this was successful. the The Portuguese and the um, the Capuchins that were stationed with her were convinced of her her of her genuineness, her spirituality, um, and this secured the release of her sister Kambu and also was starting to to get some concessions from the Portuguese on um, on their 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 diplomatic relations and also their kind of military aggression. Um, but Jinga still didn't see that as as the final solution because she didn't trust the Portuguese either. The Portuguese had a had a pretty Uh, solid reputation at this point for going back on deals that they had made Um, so she wanted a way to get around them so as Jinga solidified her spirituality she began writing many letters directly to the Vatican completely circumventing the Portuguese her goal here was to have direct diplomatic relations with the Pope and to have her nation recognized as a Christian nation with her as its Christian ruler this would allow her to be on a more equal footing with other Christian European leaders, which would in turn give additional protection to the sovereignty of Ndongo and Matamba. And this is really a brilliant diplomatic move on her part. Um, since at this time, the, the Portuguese and really most other um, Christian European nations took a lot of direction directly from the Vatican, On how they they grew their own empires how they operated diplomatically um, and how they even related with each other so if you'll you'll remember some world history when uh, when the Americas were discovered by the Europeans the claims to the land there were decided by the Pope Uh, in fact all of the land in South America was divided between Spain and Portugal by the Vatican. So Jinga knew that the Vatican held extreme sway over these European nations. And so if she could have a relationship with the Vatican, that would give her a lot of power. After many attempts, Jinga finally received a response from Pope Alexander VII in March 1661. This letter addressed her as Dearest in Christ of Daughter and a Queen Jinga and responded favorably to her requests to be recognized as a Christian ruler. This cemented the conversion of Ndongo Matamba to a Christian nation and further motivated Jinga to take bigger and even more open changes to the country's spiritual culture. In August 12, 1663. She dedicated a large stone church, the tallest building constructed in the area, to the Virgin Mary. And as the years would go forward, she'd make concerted efforts to baptize her her people and convert them to Christianity. She knew that these were necessary steps in cementing that relationship with the Vatican and also securing the independence and sovereignty of her nation and people. In the fall of 1663, Jinga fell ill with high fevers, hallucinations, and throat and lung infections. As her condition worsened, she called her counselors into her chamber and gave her last orders. She wished to die a Catholic, and she wanted Christianity to continue to be promoted in her nation. One of her Capuchin priests administered last rites, and she died on the morning of December 17th, 1663 in her early 80s in her sleep. In the wake of her death, Ndongo and Matamba underwent a civil war for succession, which the Portuguese exploited to increase their expansion into Western Africa. And by 1671, Ndongo and Matamba were absorbed into Portuguese Angola. Shortly thereafter, the character assassination of Jinga from European writers began. Jinga was the perfect stand-in for the African Other. So they focused on casting her barbarity, bloodthirstiness, sexuality, and cannibalism. This started with Father Kavatsi, one of her Capuchin priests who was never convinced of her spiritual sincerity. He wrote, quote, Under this thrice-folded cloth in this dark tomb that you see Jinga, who made herself queen of Dongo and Matamba, lies buried. A dry corpse in this dark tomb that you see. Here lies one who lived to die. Here lies the one who by dying lives. In this dark tomb she hid herself. Because of Agrippina, Rome rebelled. Because of Helen, Greece rebelled. Because of Oxidonia, Germany rebelled. Because of Hecuba, Spain rebelled. But Ethiopia did not rebel for Jinga. Instead, Jinga overturned, destroyed, and ruined Ethiopia. Jinga in death stole from heaven's treasury. In this tomb, her body is locked up. Therefore, we can sing to a most cunning thief. A most cunning thief has stolen from the treasury of heaven. End quote. So we can tell from this, this writing that Kavatsi considered her a spiritual thief. He thought that she used... Uh, her spirituality in order to, as he said, steal and ruin Ethiopia from the Europeans. If we go farther, the philosopher Hegel, who we've talked about before, propagated this animalistic portrait of Jenga as well in order to support his idea that Africa was, quote, outside of history. In fact, all the way through the 20th century, Portuguese officials portrayed Jenga as a, quote, black savage who was conquered by the portuguese and submitted to christianity in order to consolidate their power in angola. It wasn't until angola gained independence in 1975 that her image began to be rehabilitated. And as i mentioned, this is this is very similar to what happened with the with the story of Dandara and Luísa Mahin where the europeans are casting these African leaders, as a as either animalistic as savages as the quote other, so that they can justify the imperialism that they that they committed in these in these regions and the the kind of atrocities that they committed there, in order to support their own colonial efforts in Southern and Central America. So it's no surprise that that this happened with Jenga. Jenga was really one of their one of their greatest and most successful adversaries in Western Central Africa um, she pushed back against them both militarily and diplomatically especially once we look at her relationship with the Vatican and after her death there was a real need to discredit her to write her history in a way that she was just conquered that that she was a what they would call a, a cunning savage that they were able to submit. However, if we look into the, the areas of former Ndongo and Matamba, stories of Jenga had been passed on orally in Kimbundu-speaking parts of the country, maintaining that she was a proud ruler who fought against the Portuguese to hold on to the independence of her people. However, colonial Angola punished students who spoke Kimbundu, and excluded Jinga from their textbooks which perpetuated this image of her that um, that they wanted to create and um, if not casting her as as a cannibal and savage just completely excluding her from the history of the country but when Angola gained their independence the image of Jinga started to be revived and her history re-examined and now her image has been replaced with that of a fearless guerrilla leader. A major street in Luanda is named after her and a statue of her was placed in Kinashishi in 2002. This was dedicated by President Santos to celebrate the 27th anniversary of Angolan independence and Angolan women are often married near the statue. In addition, the National Reserve Bank of Angola issued a series of coins in tribute to Jenga, quote, in recognition of her role to defend self-determination and cultural identity of her people. Finally, an Angolan film, Jenga, Queen of Angola, was released in 2013 to again tell the true story of, of this early Angolan queen. So, We see that there's been a lot of progress in, I guess, in a way, decolonializing Angola in the decades since its independence. And part of that is reviving the actual history of the region before um, and during the process of colonialization. This was a pattern that we see when we look out to other Portuguese colonies Um, both in Africa and in uh, in Southern America, where the the histories that are taught under the colonial government is structured in a way to justify the colonialism itself. And it's really no surprise that they would do this. Um, They they're focused on maintaining their power. They're focusing on justifying their actions. So these are the steps they take to do that. And so now that we understand the impacts of this uh this colonialism on the the ancestors of the people who were who were colonialized we can start to shed away the artifacts that colonialism has left so that brings us to the end of our story today on jinga the Queen of Angola. And I, I have to say, this was a really um, a really challenging episode for me to do, um, but also one that I enjoyed a lot because I really in- learned a whole lot about this this era of history. And I mean, that's, that's really why it was challenging is that um, I really didn't know anything about Jenga going into this. I knew her name, um, I had seen her referenced in a few, a few books before, but beyond that, um, I had really no knowledge of who she was and what she did. So I had a lot of learning to do. Um, but I really want to credit the, um, uh, the work of, uh, of Dr. Linda Haywood and uh, the book that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode for providing a lot of that, of that information. And I, again, I highly recommend that you go and read this book. There is so much more information in there that I uh, I couldn't get into if I had three hours here. Um, so please, if you really want to learn more about both this era of uh, of African history and Jenga herself, go read that book. Um, but I think even though Jenga is not a Kapwaista, is really before this is this is pre capoeira history. There's there's a lot of inspiration that. First that we can take from her, uh, based on her story of resistance against the Portuguese uh, incursions and ho- her her desire to preserve both her nation and her culture and she did this through many different ways, some military some militarily some diplomatically um, and she was really just willing to use any leverage that she had in order to to get the um, the advantage that she needed. On top of that, if we if we look into some stories about not only Jinga but Ndongo at the time, there there are some that you can start to see the seeds of what would become Kapda. There's a lot of talk of ritualistic combat. There's a lot of talk of of dance related to military preparations. So we start to see these these roots, of these capoeira aspects. We even see some roots of the agogo with uh, some of the, the the types of bells that they would use at this time. So for, for that reason, I think it's really important for us to know about this and learn uh, because we can we can take a lot of that forward into both what we understand about capoeira today and what we use capoeira for going forward. So, as always, Please, if you have any questions about anything uh, history related, uh, what we talk about today, or if you have any stories or things that you've heard different about about anything we talked about today, please feel free to send them to me. Um, my email is in the description. Uh, I'm more than happy to take input and incorporate that into what I do here. It really helps me a lot improve Um, the kind of work that I do going forward and with that we'll close for today so thank you all again for listening this far and I'll see you next time